Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer, Fred, Fred Hoffman. Amidst all the bad farm economic news due to the pandemic, there are some bright spots. The Central Valley Project is releasing more water to its farm customers south of the Delta. And we hear from President Trump, who last week announced a new $19 billion relief plan for farmers, including California's specialty crop producers. We have the outlook for the western wildfire season, and we pay a visit to a Sacramento Valley rice-growing family that includes a flying farmer who has been seeding the rice fields from the air for over 40 years. All that crop reports and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. There's a little bit of good news for farmers who are customers of the Central Valley Project. April showers and a few showers in May brought a slight increase in water availability for customers of the Federal Central Valley Project. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, which operates the Central Valley Project, said Tuesday it will increase allocations for agricultural customers south of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta to 20 percent. That's up slightly from 15 percent. The Friant Water Unit also will see a 5% increase in allocations, up to 60%. Farm bankruptcies were rising before the coronavirus pandemic, and more challenges are ahead. American Farm Bureau Federation economist John Newton says the trend is concerning. What we've seen is over the last 12 months ending March 2020 is Chapter 12 bankruptcies in the United States totaled 627 filings. That was up 23%. While it's well below the levels we saw in the 80s, it's still the third highest that we've seen in the last 20 years. So it's a concerning trend. Newton says those bankruptcies occurred prior to the coronavirus pandemic, which has resulted in steep declines in commodity prices. We did see the administration roll out the coronavirus food assistance package with $16 billion in support to agriculture. But that's just an initial down payment. Farmers are going to face some struggles with high unemployment, loss of off-farm income, and with farm debt at a record $425 billion that could increase farm loan delinquencies. Newton says farmers will need additional relief. Farmers have an opportunity to go in and enroll for the CFAP funding after Memorial Day. That's going to provide an immediate financial boost to some farmers across the country. We know that the secretary has $14 billion in additional funding available later this summer. And then I think as senators start to work on the next assistance package, thinking about the needs of agriculture to help us bridge the gap and avoid more farm bankruptcies in the future. Michael Clements, Washington. Along with roiling markets for farm products, the pandemic has cut off farm income for many farm families. The California Farm Bureau Federation's Ag Alert newspaper reports that most farmers or ranchers supplement ag income with off-farm jobs, but nearly half of those who responded to a California Farm Bureau survey said they had lost off-farm income due to the pandemic. An agricultural economist calls off-farm income critical for small farms and said many larger farms count on it, too. USDA is facing new and unforeseen challenges as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Every crisis has its own language, if you think about it. And who in America had thought about food supply chain prior to now? That was Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue. He spoke to a panel hosted by the Bipartisan Policy Center. We had a production scheme, a very efficient, synchronized, integrated, sophisticated delivery system, both for the production and the processing and the logistics and the delivery to the different uh, sectors. One being the institutional setting, being restaurants and other congregate feeding areas, and one being to the consumer through retail, mostly in grocery chains. He says before the pandemic, more than 50 percent of the food Americans consumed was consumed outside of the home. So when you think about that, the processors in the middle 
for processing for different consumers, for different packaging, different sizes, and other things. But he adds, It's USDA's role to uh, be flexible and to move very quickly in realigning these uh, dislocations and misalignments that we had in the supply chain. And USDA has a program that aims to do just that. And the one program that we are really rolling out that we're really proud of, and that's the Farmers to Families Food Box Program. The Farmers to Families Food Box Program is part of the $19 billion Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. USDA will partner with local and regional distributors to purchase up to $3 billion worth of fresh produce, dairy, and meat and distribute it to those in need. It's really disheartening to all of us in agriculture when a, when a farmer or a producer puts their blood, sweat, and tears into growing animals or vegetables or produce or milk and having to destroy that milk or dairy produce or meat because it's the misalignment of can't getting that protein where it needs to be. Another issue has had to do with feeding school children. With the pandemic closing schools, USDA was faced with answering an important question. Where do most of these kids get their nutrition from? Both free and reduced lunch and breakfast for our schools. So we had to make very immediate flexibilities there. At the same time, USDA has had to balance rapid action with a sense of responsibility. We've got certain criteria criteria to try to preserve the integrity of the processes because this is public money. So in this case, how did USDA respond? We had to do many, many waivers initially in order to get these kids fed. And it was amazing how communities reached up and reached out to get the kids fed. USDA has announced that flexibilities to school meals programs will be extended through the summer. These include non-congregate feeding, allowing parents or guardians to pick up meals, and allowing for multiple days' worth of meals to be provided at the same time. The flexibilities allow for children to be fed while promoting social distancing during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey taking a look at the national weather picture for the week ahead. Looking ahead to week two, and this covers the last six days of May and the first day of June, we are expecting summer-like temperatures across much of the country Virtually the entire U.S. expecting above normal temperatures from May 26th through June 1st. There may be a a pocket in Texas and elsewhere in the south central United States where there's enough cloudiness and rainfall that we could see below normal temperatures. Getting to the precipitation outlook, large part of the country, particularly across the south and the eastern half of the country, expecting near to above normal precipitation in late May and the first day of June. But we do expect drier than normal conditions from the Pacific Northwest to the Northern High Plains. Many other forecasters agree with Brad Rippey's forecast for the West in the days ahead from May 26th through June 1st. For the Southern Sacramento and Northern San Joaquin Valleys, it's going to be warm, if not hot. 90s, upper 90s on Wednesday and Thursday, dropping down into the upper 80s Friday through Monday, June the 1st. Overnight lows for the most part, upper 50s to low 60s and plenty of sunshine. Here's this week's California crop report. In Tulare County, winter grains such as wheat, oats, and barley were maturing. In other areas, winter small grains, including wheat, were being harvested for silage. Winter wheat was being cut, dried, and baled. Alfalfa continues to be cut, dried, and baled. First cut alfalfa was completed in Sutter County. Rice planting continues with some rice growers leaving fields fallow due to water shortages. Corn was progressing well. Stone fruit orchards continue to develop. 
Early varieties of apricots, peaches, and nectarines continue to be picked and shipped. Bing cherry harvest began. Plums were thinned where necessary due to fruit size in Tulare County. Apples and pears continue progressing. Grapevine growth was boosted during the warm weather. Valencia orange, lemon, lime, tangelo, and pomelo harvest continues. Remaining seedless tangerine groves were covered with netting to prevent pollination. Olives continue to be pruned. Some strawberries around Santa Maria were damaged by high temperatures and wind. The Oxnard strawberry harvest was winding down as production shifted north. Blueberries continue to be harvested and shipped for domestic and export markets. New nut orchards were prepped for planting. Herbicide and fungicide applications were made. Concerns of pests and diseases were reported with some issues resulting from recent heavy rains. Almond nut fill was well underway. The yield continued to look strong throughout the Central Valley. Almond, walnut, and pistachio growth continues with delayed leaf-out issues increasing in some northern counties. In Sutter County, tomato transplants were mostly completed. Summer vegetable crops in Tulare County continue to be planted and have developed well with the warmer temperatures as well as adequate rains. Pea harvesting was ending with hot weather affecting production. Rangeland grasses and forbs are flourishing here in California. Foothill rangeland and non-irrigated pasture were reported to be in good to excellent condition. Movement of cattle to higher elevation pasture continues. Some bees were moved to kiwi vineyards and melon fields for pollination. Don't forget the KSTE Farm Hour is available on your schedule. You can listen to it live, of course, at 6.50 on the AM dial here in Northern California or stream it live via the iHeartRadio app. And, of course, the KSTE Farm Hour is available as a podcast. Download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, and that includes the iHeartRadio app, Apple Music, and Google Play. Here's a shortage you may or may not be aware of garlic shortage. There's multiple reasons behind the deficit of that aromatic bulb. While other factors have contributed to the deficit, the shelter-in-place orders are the main reason shoppers may be finding no garlic or they're finding unusually sized garlic or more expensive garlic in grocery stores. The San Jose Mercury News reports that people largely confined to their home have been cooking more and buying more garlic to cook with. Christopher Ranch, which typically sells 500,000 pounds of garlic per week to grocers, restaurants, and industrial buyers, watched demand skyrocket after the stay-home orders were imposed, first to 600,000 pounds per week, then to 700,000, then to 800,000. Meanwhile, demand from restaurants for garlic has plummeted, but demand from grocers has exploded. But it seems that the smaller stores are the ones getting shut out of the fresh garlic. Larger retailers are more likely to have the bulb in stock amid the shortage. Close to half of the garlic consumed in California is grown in-state by three major farms, and that includes Christopher Ranch. Some consumers have ramped up their garlic purchases out of a belief that the pungent cloves have properties that could be helpful against the virus. Google Trends indicates searches for health benefits of garlic spiked as shelter orders came into effect, with the Bay Area showing the highest interest. But one epidemiologist, Arthur Reingold of UC Berkeley, threw cold water on that notion that the garlic bulb may offer protection from the coronavirus. 
He told the San Jose Mercury News, I eat a lot of garlic myself, but I don't expect it to protect me from infectious diseases. There is good news. There's light at the end of the tunnel. The shortage of garlic is expected to end soon as the near-term garlic forecast calls for harvest here in California to begin in less than three weeks. Although wildfire activity across the nation has become a year-round concern, in the western U.S., the major time frame for observation, preparation, and action remains the summer months, from May to Labor Day. 2017, 2018, of course, were busy fire seasons across a lot of the West, especially California. 2019 was a very slow year across the West, burned much less than the average number of acres and much less than the average number of fires as well occurred. So what do National Interagency Fire Center meteorologist Brian Henry and others forecast as potential wildfire conditions and locations for 2020? I'm Rod Bain. And coming up, a glance at this year's Western wildfire season outlook in this edition of Agriculture USA. One of the duties of the National Interagency Fire Center, a collaboration of federal agencies such as the U.S. Forest Service, is providing regular outlooks of potential wildfire conditions across the country. And although that has been a year-round job in recent years, the busiest season remains the period from May 1st to Labor Day, with the greatest activity in the western region of the country. And National Interagency Fire Center meteorologist Brian Henry says the expected outlook for the western wildfire season for 2020 looks like this. We're expecting an above normal fire season. We have several factors that are beginning to line up with each other that we tend to see during the busier type seasons. First, the previous fall, it was pretty warm and dry along the west coast from northern California up through Oregon into Washington state. Soil moisture were dry entering the winter. So exiting winter, the soils are still pretty dry. And in some areas, that has been exasperated by expanded drought conditions going into the summer mainly across Northern California, Nevada, Oregon, Washington State, and even getting into Idaho a little bit. So we're concerned about it there. There's also drought emerging and intensifying across Southern Colorado and out in the Four Corners region. In addition, across the Great Basin and Northern California, Southern California, even in Arizona, they're growing a third consecutive heavy grass crop. So we have a fuel bed that's fairly continuous in the lower elevations. That's going to dry and cure out here in the next month or so. A development of recent weeks has been a tremendous acceleration in the snowpack melting rate across Oregon, Northern California, going across Idaho, even down to Washington State and to the east slopes of the Washington Cascades. Southern Colorado is also starting to see an acceleration in their snowpack melting rates as well. And based on research, when you lose your snowpack at an earlier than average date, you tend to have more fires in the higher terrain, and those fires can tend to be bigger. Going forward, temperature and precipitation becomes a major factor. And according to Henry, that will be dictated this summer by a transition in atmospheric conditions between El Nino and La Nina. As we transition out of that weak El Nino towards eventual La Nina conditions, and the models right now are suggesting that that might occur by early to mid-fall, we start seeing a kind of resetting of the atmospheric flow patterns, the one that would promote high-pressure ridges over the west during the summer months. It would be kind of strong. That would promote overall warmer and drier than average conditions. So how do all these factors translate into wildfire activity and potential hotspots over the next four months? Henry says starting this month, our primary concern is right there along the Mexican border in Arizona, New Mexico, and West Texas. In Arizona in particular, where they also have the heavy grass crop. There are some areas there that have elevated fire potential based on that and based on the pre-existing dry conditions. Transitioning from May into June. We have above normal fire potential across the southern part of the Great Basin. Also, as we get into June, those grasses and those middle and higher elevations across northern California, they're going to dry out. So we probably should see an increase in activity across northern California in June. 
Bend to the peak of western wildfire activity in July and August. You see the southwest starting to wind down with the arrival of the monsoon by second week of July, probably. And the fire activity should this year become a little bit more focused across the western half of the Great Basin due to the heavy grass crop they have there and the intensifying drought that's over there. It kind of starts to slowly refocus towards northern California, Oregon, Washington, western half of the northern Rockies, and southern Idaho. Those will probably be our focal points until we can get some kind of a wedding rain event or series of wedding rain events coming through after say, Labor Day. Now, despite the above normal wildfire forecast for the West this summer, Henry says for the 49th State of the Union, We're anticipating Alaska to be a good bit slower than what they saw last year. As in 2019, when most of the West reported a below normal wildfire season, Alaska was quite busy. They account for a bulk of the acreage that was burned last year. A later than normal melting of snowpack beginning this month should start the wildfire season either at its usual time frame in Alaska or even later in the season. Henry adds cooler atmospheric conditions in Alaska expected during the summer months suggest a less active wildfire season there for 2020. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Congratulations to Bullseye Farms in Woodland. They've been recognized as the world's first almond farm to be independently certified under the internationally recognized sustainably grown standard for agricultural crops. Among the company's achievements were competitive employee benefits resulting in a less than 1% average turnover rate, hosting frequent educational community field days, industry tours, as well as university research and workshops. Bullseye Farms increased orchard soil health in order to decrease overall inputs. Bullseye Farms moved away from pyrethroids and relied more on beneficial insects for pest management. And progressive and state-of-the-art irrigation monitoring data collection techniques created a multifaceted water management strategy. The sustainably grown certification standard applies to products meeting the highest levels of environmental, social, and economic sustainability. The latest World Agriculture Supply and Demand Report from USDA shows COVID-19 impacting demand for agricultural commodities. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Shelby Meyer says for corn, decreased ethanol demand is changing the 2020 outlook. USDA estimated a month-to-month decrease of 100 million bushels of ethanol corn use compared to the April WASDE. But since March, when COVID-19 impacts were beginning, overall corn ethanol use has decreased 475 million bushels. USDA estimates ending stocks for this marketing year to rise above 2 billion bushels. And prior to COVID-19, ending stocks were projected to be 1.7 billion bushels. Meyer says cotton continues to struggle amid the pandemic and needs a better export market this year. For the new marketing year, cotton planting expectations mirror last year at 13.7 million acres with almost just as much production, but estimates of 46% more cotton carryover from this year to next is going to burden supply. Cotton really needs the export market to pick up and USDA estimates reflect a 6% increase in exports for this upcoming marketing year. USDA also made changes to the outlook for soybeans and wheat. USDA estimates soybean production will rebound this year, along with even better news of soybean exports for the new crop, up 22% from 2019. For wheat, it had a meek outlook earlier this year, but COVID-19 consumer trends have given a small bump to wheat food use that was unexpected and can hopefully continue to lower the stocks use ratio below 40%. Michael Clements, Washington. Politico's Morning Agriculture reports that rural roads are in need of repair. Well, you knew that already. 
Fixing outdated infrastructure isn't top of mind for most policymakers at the moment, but the issue remains a huge headache for U.S. agriculture, and it could be made worse by the coronavirus pandemic. TRIP, T-R-I-P, is a nonprofit transportation research group. They found that a combined 34% of rural roads are in poor or mediocre condition. That's especially problematic for heavy vehicles like farm machinery or trucks carrying ag products. Meanwhile, the rates of car crashes and fatalities on rural roads are more than twice as high as all other roads. The report touts the rural transportation network as the first and last link in the supply chain from farm to market, and it's a system that's facing massive disruptions right now. The irony is that at the same time, the current lack of traffic offers governments a rare opportunity to repair roads and other infrastructure. But there's a huge backlog in funding for such repairs, and the pandemic isn't helping. The sharp drop-off in travel is projected to lower state transportation revenue by at least 30%. That's $50 billion over the next 18 months. Congress has made several half-hearted attempts in recent years to negotiate a bipartisan infrastructure bill, but those talks have always fizzled out. Now, House Democrats are proposing to infuse $875 billion into the coffers of cash-strapped state and local governments, and that's a central but very controversial piece of their stimulus plan. As you travel throughout the Sacramento Valley this time of year, you're going to see airplanes flying really low. You may think they're crop dusters. They would rather be known as ag pilots because in reality, what they're spraying this time of year is seed, rice seed. Jim Morris of the California Rice Commission recently talked with one of these ag pilots about his career in the air here in Northern California. California rice holds many surprises. Whether it's the vital wildlife connection, the scale and efficiency of growing and milling rice, or the billions of dollars this industry generates for our economy, the impacts are huge. And one of the most surprising facets of California rice is happening here in mid-spring planting the crop via airplane. I'm in the Sacramento Valley today covering an important part of the rice growing season. I'm in Calusa County speaking with Rick Richter of Richter Aviation, and you've been an ag pilot for more than 40 years. So let's start with the early days. What was your background and what interested you in this profession? Well, Jim, I started out uh, with a bachelor of science degree in agriculture from Chico State College, and it was just so hard back then to try to get into farming, which was what I wanted to do. And I, um, I had a passion for aviation, so I learned to fly while going to Chico State. Uh, when I got to Maxwell, I was looking for opportunities to work, and my cousin had just started this business here east of Maxwell, crop dusting business in 1976, and it was perfect timing for me. Uh, I talked with him, Paul Richter, and uh, he uh, made a spot for me, and we started loading airplanes, and from then it grew to flying their planes, and uh, three years later, sat in 1979, was my first uh, year as an ag pilot. And so 41 years in, that's an amazing run. So how many flights or hours would that be in the air? Jim, that's about 22,000 hours uh, to date. Uh, counting all uh, all my flying, which isn't much in the general aviation side. It's mostly uh, ag flying. 
Do you uh, ever have uh, <laughs> dreams about flying when you're when you're resting, or can you leave the the nine to five at the office? It's tough. It's tough. You know, this is our life this time of year. We do five months out here from May to August in the rice business, and it's uh, every day four in the morning till dark. Uh, sometimes in the summer, usually around the fourth of July, we'll get a break uh, and start getting Sundays off. So it's kind of a treat for us. So it is a busy time right now in the spring. So tell me what an average day looks like in terms of seeding the rice fields. Well, we're up at four in the morning. We're here at five to six. The crews roll in. We're out on the jobs by 630. And uh, from then until dark, sometimes we're out, depending on the workload. What happens when they're seeding? Do you have a pre-germinated seed? I mean, just walk me through some of the major steps in it. And it's fascinating to see that seed being loaded. They're working like an indie pit crew, I think. Oh, yeah. We pride ourselves on the speed that it takes, you know, that we can get the load out. The seed is soaked for at least 24 hours prior to uh, our applications. It's brought to us in bulk trailers, bulk semi-truck trailers to the airstrips. They're usually the closest strip within two miles of the field. So we do, we can make our turnarounds quicker and get more done. What speed can you travel? Uh, what's the highest speed and what's the lowest altitude you might be traveling, depending on the circumstances of each rice farm? Well, you know, we're probably seeding rice about 30 feet in the air, depending on the wind. The windier conditions uh, require a, a lower altitude. But uh, spraying, we're within 10 feet of the crop and going about 120 to 130 miles per hour on some of the more modern turbine aircraft. Some of the faster ones will go up to 150. And uh, that's moving fast compared to the old days when it was just 100 miles an hour in an old ag cat. The professional ag pilots that we have nowadays uh, don't leave anything for granted. You know, we take pride in what we do and we want to be there, you know, for our children and our families at the end of the day. Talk about the change in technology since when you started and the importance of global positioning system GPS. Yeah, that was uh, GPS is the biggest breakthrough that's ever come to this industry. And it just changed it forever. Uh, it's amazing we can get within three feet of our uh, swath and uh, multiple swaths at a time. The field's all laid out for us, hardly any problems. Uh, it's just amazing what it did. It took away the job from the flaggers and the and the crews that we had to position on each field, and it allowed us for much more efficiency in the operation. The term crop duster comes up a lot, much more than the term ag pilot. What's the name that you think is most fitting? Crop duster is just an old moniker from the back of the old days when they dusted crops. But nowadays, they're professional pilots. We're required to have training, continuing education every year licensed by the state, licensed by the federal aviation regulations as commercial pilots, and the operators are actually licensed, you know, as commercial ag operators. So there's plenty of regulation in our business. We take it in stride. We understand that we need to have that to keep our skills honed and to protect the uh, crop protection materials. You have uh, the good fortune of working with your son. So when did that start and how does that make you feel? Because you're getting closer to retirement. It just makes me feel great. He's such a such a major link in this operation. You know, we're getting in the process of turning it over to him. It's kind of hard for me to let go of the reins. And, and the good thing about it is he understands that. And uh, he's taking that in stride. He knows that someday it'll be it'll be all his to, to worry about. <laughs> 
And this is Nick, and you have a traditional-looking yellow airplane, and he has a white one that looks a little different. Now, I'm no aviation expert. Tell me the difference of what you fly and what Nick flies. Well, I'm flying a 1979 biplane, and he's flying a 2011 uh, Thrush S2R with a Pratt Whitney engine on it. It goes faster. It carries the same amount of speed, but it's a sleeker, modern-looking airplane. Probably, you know, the wave of the future. The old, the old biplanes are kind of being a thing of the past, but they're good, strong, sturdy airplanes, and they're more suited to our country where the, the fields are maybe smaller. You can get a tighter turn out of it. But he enjoys that speed and the wider swath that he gets with the larger wing on that airplane. With the COVID-19 crisis, uh, agriculture has rightly been deemed an essential industry. And of course, it's easy here in Maxwell to see that with farms and farm-related industries. But what's your comment about the value of agriculture to California? Oh, it's worth so much to our economy here in California. I'm not sure of the numbers, but just the rice business alone, you know, contributes so much to the local economy. Everybody's job in this area depends on rice. How do you feel when uh, people are eating a rice bowl or risotto, paella, sushi, etc.? You had a hand in that. Oh, well, I sure did, and I've I've been to restaurants in the in the South that have used California medium grain rice in their sushi. You know, I tell them all about it. I say, hey, that I know where that came from. Rick, tell me a little bit about your level of pride. You're coming to the end of your career, and you've done a lot. You and other ag pilots have done a lot to keep rice on tables. It's so rewarding to see that rice come up and it's beautiful green after you plant it within a week or two and the whole area turns into just a magic carpet. You watch it all summer long and then it comes to golden uh, yellow brown at harvest and you just get that feeling that, you know, I did this. I, I provided this part of this 500,000 acres in this valley for the people around the world to use and it's just, it just, it, it's home, I'll tell you. Farming in California is all about family, and there are connections even between growers and pilots. I'm visiting with Kurt Richter, rice grower, and tell me your connection with Rick Richter. Well, Rick is a cousin of ours. Uh, we share a common ancestor that was actually our original uh, immigrant uh, to California from the area that's now known as Germany. Rick uh, and my father, Paul Richter, uh, were connected uh, you know, from childhood all the way up, um, and Rick has always done all the applications for our family's farming operation. How important are the pilots to what you do? A pilot plays a huge role in the quality of the product that you're going to put out at the end of the season. You know, the the seed application just in and of itself is is one of the most important applications of the year um, for the application to be done uh, in a nice even way where it's spread out, no skips, no overlaps, no bunching coming out of the the bottom of the airplane. Uh, so they can, you know, a, a good quality pilot can definitely make or break uh, any particular crop. Planting season's never easy. There's always hurdles to clear. But how are things going? Uh, yeah, it has definitely been a year of hurdles. Um, you know, we we faced water cuts early and made it past that hurdle. Then we faced aqua shortages, and we've now passed that hurdle. And now we've got rain. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just uh, any given week, any number of issues that can crop up. But we're used to this in California rice. You know, we've we've battled out the weather uh, many times in the last few years, and you know, all these other problems are things that you know come up from time to time. And so you just have to have contingency plans and a strategy for how to work around those issues. And uh, for our operation, at least, I feel like we've done pretty well. We're on track to be wrapped up here very soon. After planting, it does not take long for the rice plants to emerge. So throughout the summer, when you're heading north to Sacramento, keep an eye out for those beautiful green rice fields. 
That again was Jim Morris of the California Rice Commission. He was talking to members of the Richter family, prominent rice growers in the Sacramento Valley. If you want to hear more, visit their podcast, Ingrained, the California Rice Podcast. You can find it at podcast.calrice.org. Tuesday, President Trump announced an aid package sign-up for farmers and livestock producers. Attendees included USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue and American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duval. Here are extended excerpts from President Trump's announcement from the White House last Tuesday. We're here this morning to announce dramatic action to support our nation's farmers, ranchers, and growers as we work to safely reopen America. It's happening very fast much faster and with much better numbers than anybody would have thought. I want to begin by expressing our profound gratitude to everyone here today and the farmers and producers across the country who have kept our nation fed and nourished as we have battled the invisible enemy. It is an invisible enemy. It's tough, but we're going to win and we're going to win very big. You remind us once again that the American farmer is the backbone of our country and uh, they're really a great friend of mine and I appreciate all the support and I know they appreciate our support. From day one, my administration has been determined to protect our nation's incredible farmers. We enacted historic tax cuts and helped family farms stay in the family. What we did is we passed, as you know, on the tax cuts, uh, the death tax the inheritance tax, farms and ranches and even businesses, you don't have to pay it. It's a big deal. Instead of losing your farm, you keep your farm. We eliminated crushing Washington regulations, kept our promise on ethanol, and replaced and negotiated our badly broken trade deals to finally give you a fair and level playing field. When China unfairly targeted our farmers, we provided $28 million in direct assistance, and it came from China, not from our government. And uh, you know that happened, and they paid for it. We didn't pay. You know they have this misconception. They like to say this as much as possible. China devalued their currency in order to pay it. We didn't pay it. And what we did is we helped. I went to Sunny. We had 12 billion dollars two years ago. We had 16 billion last year. And this year you'll be hearing about what we're doing because it's very substantial. And through the Paycheck Protection Program. We have approved billions of dollars in relief to farmers as part of our unprecedented coronavirus relief efforts. Now we're standing strong with our farmers and ranchers once again. In normal times, roughly 40% of fresh vegetables and about 40% of beef grown and raised in the United States is distributed to restaurants and other commercial food establishments. But as you know, the virus has forced many of our nation's restaurants to temporarily close. And this has taken a major toll on our farmers and growers, some of whom uh, were dealing directly with restaurants. I didn't realize that until yesterday we were with the big restaurants and they sometimes will deal directly with your farmer. No middlemen, no nothing, just directly. And it's a big, uh, it's a big business. For this reason, my administration is launching a sweeping new initiative, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Through this effort, we are providing $19 billion to support our nation's agricultural producers, maintain the health of our critical food supply chains, and provide food assistance to American families. $19 billion. No other president's done this, Zippy. I'll tell you, you can go back to Abraham Lincoln. There's no president that's treated the farmers like Trump. I don't know. 
I hear we're doing well with the farmers, but I can't imagine. I want to find out who wouldn't be, who wouldn't be with Trump, right? But it's an honor to do it, actually. It's an honor. They're great people. These are great, great people. As part of this program today, we're announcing $16 billion direct payments to farmers and ranchers. So $16 billion is going directly to the farmers and ranchers. And it's authorized by the CARES Act and the Commodity Credit Corporation Charter Act. We fought hard for this. These payments will compensate farmers for losses related to the global pandemic caused by China. We'll be providing billions of dollars for corn, cotton, soybean, and specialty crop farmers, cattle ranchers, just about every category. I think we have almost every category that we don't want to add them, right? If we left something out, but we have a lot of, a lot of territory. Dairy producers, pork producers, and more. I read yesterday where uh, we take some cattle in from other countries because we have trade deals. I think you should look at terminating those deals. All right? We have trade deals where we actually take in cattle. And we have a lot of cattle in this country. And I think you should look at the possibility of uh, terminating those trade deals. Now, the country's been a great country and a great ally and a great friend. It's, you know, we have to do that. But there are some countries that are sending us cattle for many years, and I think we should look at uh, terminating. We're very self-sufficient, and we're becoming more and more self-sufficient, probably one of the reasons I got elected. Sign-ups will begin on May 26th through your local farm service agency offices. You're going to go sign up to pick it up, to get the money, and we'll start issuing payments within one week of receiving your application. So that's a lot of money. You're talking about a total of 16 billion plus 3 billion. And you know, uh, we uh, bought last week, and it's already in distribution, $3 million worth of product for the food lines. And it's, uh, is this already in distribution? I see that they're handing it out. I see where they couldn't get food. They're having a hard time. And we have these incredible ranchers and farmers that have so much food. And I said, let's spend that money and give it to our farmers, our ranchers, and it's worked out really well. So, and they've already got it in supply. That's it's already on the lines. I saw them handing it out today, a couple of days ago, actually. It's fantastic how quickly it worked. In addition, this important initiative also includes the new Farmers to Families Food Box Program, which Ivanka and Secretary Purdue helped officially launch on Friday. Through this effort, the Department of Agriculture will work with local food distribution companies, and we have a lot of great distribution companies, I've gotten to meet some of them, which have also been hit very hard to purchase $3 billion of food and products from the American farmer, which I just mentioned, and to deliver to the food banks and charities that serve needy families. Already we've allocated $1.2 billion to farmers, to families, funding through 198 contracts with distribution companies, many of which are small businesses adversely impacted also by this horrible plague. It's a plague. The farmers were targeted by China when we started uh, negotiating tough with China. And what I did is we've taken in tens of billions of dollars of tariffs. Sonny is very aware of this because he had to distribute the money to the farmers. I said, Sonny, we've taken in a lot of money. How much did the farmers lose? This is two years ago. Uh, they were targeted for an amount. What do you think the impact? He said $12 billion. So I said, that's okay, we'll take $12 billion out of our 
tariff money, which was many billions more than that, that China paid. Never paid us 10 cents, by the way, before that. Before Trump, they never paid anything. I said, we'll take 12 billion out of the tens of billions of dollars that we took in, and we're going to give it to the farmers. And you distributed that money. And Zippy, I think you were shocked because you've never seen anything like that. Otherwise, these farmers wouldn't have been in business. So we took 12 billion, we gave it to the farmers. We said, thank you very much to China. Thank you very much, China. And then the next year I said, Sonny, what's the number? We called Zippy, we called some of the other people. We determined it was $16 billion that the farmers were targeted, 16 billion by China. So I took 16 billion out of the tariffs, which were many, many billions of tens of billions more than that. We gave it to the farmers, right? And this year, the same thing. It's been pretty amazing. And the farmers are doing fine. One of them said, I do better this way. But you know what? They don't want to do better that way. They just want a level playing field. But we took care of our farmers, right? And ranchers. That's right. So just to conclude, American farmers, ranchers, and growers feed, fuel, and sustain our nation. They're proud defenders of the American way of life, and I'm proud to stand right by their side in this hour of need. And the food chains are now back to almost working perfectly again. They had some interruptions, which you knew about, and we were able to take a very bold action. You saw that. And that action caused them to do what they had to do. And uh, they're in good shape, and very shortly they'll be in absolutely perfect shape. That again was President Trump announcing an aid package sign-up for farmers and livestock producers. The program is known as the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Under the program, producers will receive 80% of their expected payment initially. The remaining 20% will come later in the year, likely after the Commodity Credit Corporation coffers have been replenished. Payments will be based on price declines from mid-January to mid-April, according to the USDA as well as specialty crops that have been shipped from the farm during that time, but then spoiled because of lost markets. For more information, visit the website farmers.gov slash CFAP. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast at KSTE.com.